The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. And a special welcome to anybody who's here for the first time tonight. One of the things I do is just remind folks about how the center operates once a month, usually the last Sunday night of the month. And so just a reminder that as a community, we're, whether you realize it or not, we're sort of making this commitment to practice what we call dana which is a word that's sometimes translated as generosity, but a little bit more specific. It's this practice of giving and receiving freely. And this is a nice way to just live our lives generally, although not easy at all. But it's relatively easy to learn about it at a place like Common Ground where we don't charge for anything on purpose. And so the idea is when you come here and you learn or you take a program or whatever, You practice appreciating that you're you're being offered it as a free gift, no strings attached. Of course, the only reason we do that is because people have been generous in the past, so we have a building and we have these programs. Even the teachings themselves from the time of the Buddha down, you know, mostly, I mean, nowadays it's a little different, but generally speaking, through the centuries, nobody charged for these teachings. They were just freely available at the monasteries and different places around the world. So we like to practice. Common Ground likes to practice in that tradition of really giving away things freely, not having suggested donations, not even talking about money very much. And that way we really have to practice. Okay, it's a free gift. It may feel a little weird, like, well, what are they trying to do? You know, there's got to be, there's got to be a catch here somewhere. And then, of course, like any organization, our expenses, you know, we have three paid staff people besides myself. And then on top of that, we share some of the donations that come in with the teachers. So generally speaking, about two-thirds of donations go to the, the teachers that are teaching that particular class. And the other expenses of a small organization, non-profit profit organization like this. So, but... People, when they give money or when they volunteer their time or send their good wishes, that's because they want to give back, not because they should, not because they're ashamed of not contributing, but because it makes them happy. So we just ask people to find a way to make yourself happy by being aware that you're receiving something freely, no strings attached, and if you give, you're giving because you want to give. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. You can check with me or any of the leaders if you want to find out more about it. Some people put themselves on a schedule and you can, you know, have your bank send the center a check once a month or something like that. Or you can go to their website <coughs> and sign up for a, you know, a, a regular deduction from your credit card if you want to do it that way, whether it's yearly or quarterly or weekly or monthly or Whatever it is, so you can just contribute whenever you want at any schedule. No one really tracks it. The only thing you need to remember is when I'm teaching, uh, once a year the board assigns a gift to me as my salary based on the contributions generally that have been coming into the center because I teach here a lot. Um, but other teachers, their 
support for their livelihood comes from that actual program that they're teaching. So when you take a yoga class with Nancy or come to the compassion class that Jean and Jane are going to start on Tuesday night or any of the other number of programs, then if you want to contribute online, you can leave a little note in the memo, like I want this to go, I take Nancy's class or I take this class, and then that particular teacher will get some of that for their livelihood. That's the real, the only tricky thing about how it works. Um, otherwise, you could just give a donation to the center if you're not doing other programs besides the ones that I'm teaching. Or when you're here for a guest teacher, you could leave a specific donation then so that that teacher gets a little support. But if you have any questions, just see me about how that all works. Or there is a sheet on the table with the donation bowl that explains it a little bit more. And actually, Doug Swanson, our treasurer, has the annual letter out that's on the table in the lobby. gives you a little bit of a sense. Our annual budget is between $250,000 and $300,000 a year. Uh, some of you know we're developing a retreat property out in Wisconsin for all of us to use. Um, so there's, uh, you know, we're, we can put money to, to work. And uh, there are ideas in the community to develop a, a house for people who are dying and sick. Um, where people in the community can volunteer to support them. So we have a lot of ideas of if a lot of money comes in, what we do with it. We now own this building outright, which is pretty amazing that a small community like us could not only buy it, but then renovate it in such a beautiful way. So people, you know, it's interesting how this almost seems magical that this much money flows in. But it's because, presumably, it makes people happy to contribute. So check it out. See in what way it makes you happy. And of course, some of you don't have much money, so maybe you can volunteer time, or maybe you don't have any money or any time, because you have kids, or you have your grad student or something. Well, you can still support the center with your good intentions and your good wishes for the community. So there's always some way you can straighten cushions after the program before you leave, right? There's all kinds of little ways. If someone left tissue paper on the bathroom floor, you can pick it up and throw it in the trash or come a little early and work with Brad and Ann and Liz and others who come and do cleaning every Sunday night at 6. So there's any number of ways. Or like Annie signed up to help organize the tea time, the reception time before the program on Sunday with Ben and Megan and Jeremy and the others who organize that Sunday tea time. So there's all kinds of ways to give back to the community. We're getting to winter. There's the group of people that come and shovel and use our snowblower to clear the parking lot. And there are people who are mow in the summertime and people on the garden team. And Andy over here runs the Tuesday night sit. And people do the morning sits, open the building up at 6.30 and close it down at 9 a.m. after the morning sits. I mean, I think we probably have 150 volunteers doing one thing or another to make this place happen. That's how we do it because we don't have a lot of paid staff. Shelly works uh, eight hours a week. Gabe works. Now he's going to be working 20 hours a week. And our bookkeeper, Gail, works eight hours a week too. So not too much paid staff. So let us know if you have any questions about that. And we've been looking at the teachings from the Buddha on wisdom, and it's part of this bigger set of teachings on the ten beautiful qualities of the heart. So we've already looked at 
generosity and sila, which is the word sometimes translated as um, ethical conduct, but it's, it has more of this sense of integrity or this alignment with non-harming or reverence for life. So we have generosity, this reverence for life. We have the joy of renunciation. And now the fourth of these ten beautiful qualities is wisdom. And so we're thinking. It's actually okay to be thinking about wisdom. Ultimately, wisdom is, we could say, intuitive or non-conceptual. But that's a thought too. Right? That's a concept. That wisdom is non-conceptual. And that can actually help us. The concepts are useful stepping stones to an intuitive understanding. So we have information, the concept, like wisdom's intuitive. Or wisdom is all about non-grasping, like realizing the reality or the way of non-grasping. So that's a concept. Now we can then reflect on that concept. What does it mean to not grasp? And then that can set up the actual experience in one moment, one instant, the mind not grasping, just letting things be. So we have, I talked about this two weeks ago, we have getting new information, reflecting on it, and the reflecting on that new information in terms of our actual experiencing leads to insight, an intuitive knowing or an intuitive understanding, a non-conceptual awakening, the mind learn something, see something that it hasn't seen or learned before, directly know something. When we directly, like a seismic shift, we get a little bit more clearly the underlying process nature, that things aren't things, actually. There are actually no nouns, only verbs, that it's a process nature. Like conventionally speaking, we say, yeah, I'm Mark, as if there's a set permanent thing, or this is common ground, or this is Minneapolis. I mean, we have all these concepts, United States of America. And then if you take a step over, then you're in Canada, right? And then not only is it the United States of America, it's also all of our opinions about the United States of America. Maybe we feel badly about it or we think it's the best or we're mixed. Or... But actually things, those are just very fluid ideas. Like even who I think I am has been very fluid even today. How many different senses of self. It's not like what I take Mark to be is one thing. The only thing consistent about it is the label I give it me or Mark or my life or my mind and body or this thing here, right? There's some consistency there, but what that actually points to is quite fluid because it's an, a, an, a, an unfolding process. So this, this is partly what we mean by wisdom. Wisdom is what is the process that brings the mind from being caught, stuck, identified, fixed on its concepts, its ideas, to an intuitive knowing, a way of knowing that's not fixed by concept. So last week I talked about this characteristic of wisdom, that this discerning characteristic, that 
cuts through concepts or the mind becomes liberated from whatever ideas. But it doesn't get liberated from ideas, concepts, by hating them or being afraid or sort of thinking that ideas or thoughts are bad. Thoughts are just thoughts. So tonight I want to talk about, in the tradition, the Buddhist tradition, they talk about four distortions. And it's a distortion of perception, distortion of thought, and distortion of view. These three things are related. So the example that's given in the Buddhist tradition is you're walking home at night, it's dusk, and you see something on the road. Oh, you have to imagine you're in the tropics because we don't have too many snakes around here. I mean, they're gardener snakes, but not too many in the city. But you see something, you know, that looks like it might be a snake. And so you don't want to chance it. So let's say they're poisonous snakes here. We live out west where they're rattlesnakes. I was once meditating on Mount Diablo, which means the devil. And some of you may know that in the San Francisco Bay Area where I was living. And it's this nice park up a little bit east of San Francisco. And it, I think it gets to be maybe 4,000 feet. It's pretty high. And I was just meditating and I heard something. So my eyes opened. There's a rattlesnake coming right at me. And somehow I was able to go from sitting in the half lotus to full standing position <laughs> without any thought and seemingly without any time. And of course the snake kind of rose up. So you can imagine walking in dusk after an experience like that. Then you think, Anything might be a snake, right? So you see something, you go, snake. And you don't even want to, like, so you walk around. And then your mind, so that's a distortion of perception, right? The mind, the perceptual process of the mind, it always, like sometimes you see somebody from a distance and you think, oh, that's, I do this here a lot. I, I see somebody in the building and you go, hey, Sam. But it's not Sam. It's just from that you know, with that perceptual distortion, the mind had to quickly, you know, make a, take a chance, you know, it's somebody and maybe it's, you know. But then if you don't actually get like a confirmation, you just say, oh yeah, Sam was in the building. You start to think. So then you have the distortion of thought, right? So first it's just initial perceptual distortion because your, our perceptual process is imperfect. We don't have perfect sight or perfect sound or smell or taste. So we're, we're just sort of guessing a little bit based on some data and then we sort of fill it in. We do that all the time with perception. And, you know, psychologists can prove this to you. Like they'll show you pictures and you say, oh, that's a bus, that's an airplane, that's a skyscraper, that's a... And then after like five or seven photos, they start showing you photos that are missing half of the photo. Right, so it would be like a, a jet, but it's half of the jet isn't there. But the, your mind will just fill it in. It's as if the whole jet was in the photograph, but half of it's not there. Or somebody will be missing like the lower half of their body. Or, you know, there will be a car sitting in the lake, floating on the lake. So there will be all these things, but the mind will see, perceive something that's not actually there in the photograph. Because that's what perception does. It fills in blanks. It, it makes things make sense in terms of our perception, our, our sort of memory of what we think is there in that photograph or what's there in that experience. 
we make it make sense. So, and then if we think about the distorted perception, yeah, there's a snake and it lives in that area. Right? We keep thinking about it. And then we could, that gets sort of fixed if we think about it enough into a distortion of view. Like there are a lot of snakes in my neighborhood. There's probably snakes over here too, right? And we start talking to people about how this place is infested with snakes. We start seeing them more and more. And so there's this feedback because once we have the established view, the opinion that, you know, Minneapolis is infested with snakes, then that affects perception. Then anytime there's a stick, a branch on the ground, we're going to think snake. Yep, I knew it. Snakes. This place is infested with snakes. They're everywhere. You know, and then that will cause us to think about it and talk about it, which will reinforce the view, which changes the perception. And that's called, in the Buddhist tradition, ignorance. And that's really the definition of our predicament. This is the absence of wisdom is that we're caught in these perception, these uh, perceptual thinking and view distortions, or distortions of view, distortions of thinking, distortions of perception. And the Buddha talks about four ways, four ways that these perceptions manifest. And I find this very interesting. It's a nice thing to hear and maybe even to remember. So see what comes to mind when you hear these four ways that our habits of perception, our habits of thinking, and our habits of view distort the underlying reality. So the first is the habit of taking what is impermanent to be permanent. So we do this all the time. I'll go home tonight. I'll see my wife. And... There's, there's that perception. I'll see the form, the shape or whatever. And um, I'll, through perception, thinking, and view, I'll assume that's when my wife. The same when that was there earlier today, the same when that was yesterday, right? There's a sense of permanence. But is she who was there earlier or yesterday or a month ago? No, she's this. She's a force of nature like we all are. She, Whatever we mean by her is this unfolding process that's constantly changing, right? But as soon as I have this perceptual distortion, this thinking distortion, this distortion of view, then I can mistakenly think, no, 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 she's, that's who she is. And then, you know, whatever manifests, whatever she does or says or how she behaves, I make it fit that fixed idea because I have a sense that she's a she, an it, uh, this fixed idea that I have of her. Same with my cat, same with my house, same with everything. So if I hear a news story on Syria or the Middle East or this or that, I also already have an opinion. This is the way it is in the Middle East. So whatever information I get, I'll try to make it fit. Or if it's another story about Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, I'll make it fit my fixed idea. Because I have the perception that things are permanent when in fact it's changing. 
It's not just one thing. So think about places in your life where you take something that's a changing process, an unfolding process, but the mind is in a deep habit of making it a something, like ourselves, like another person. And it's so interesting how we then get dependent on things being fixed. Like if we think things are going to hell because of global warming or because of the you know, racial injustices that are sort of built into our culture or the, you know, other kinds of oppressive qualities in our culture. Then it's like we get, the mind gets dependent, fixed on that being reality. And it, there's a certain self-fulfillingness to those that sort of, well, it's already bad. It's already broken. We're already going to hell. But things are much more fluid for the better or for the worse. Like we might have thought before 9-11, you know, that, you know, here in the United States, we would never compromise privacy for state security, you know. But after people crash planes into the World Trade Center, well, then, of course, we're, you know, and how quickly things changed because of fear. So things can get really bad or really good because it's not fixed. You know, the goodness of the, the people of the United States or the evilness of the people, in the, it's not a defined thing. We can be quite benevolent and wise and beautiful and quite ignorant and hateful. And that's good to realize how fluid, how impermanent, not fixed, Everybody, everything is. Because it makes everything possible. Everything from hell to heaven is possible. So the first distortion we need to overcome is the taking things to be permanent that are actually impermanent. Taking things to be fixed or defined when they're not actually fixed or defined. They're fluid. It's open. It's undefined. The last chapter hasn't been written. You know, it's so easy. It's almost like we want to, okay, don't bother to try to fix global warming. It's already too far. Right? It, it's funny how we want to give up because it's not going to happen anyway. I don't want to get my hope up. Or we think, no, we're going to do it. But why, why can't we suspend certainty? I don't know what's going to happen. So that our engagement with these difficult issues, whether it's racial injustice or economic injustice or global climate change or having a distracted mind or a neurotic mind. So whatever problem we're addressing, why not have an open mind about it? So that our engagement, we engage it, we show up, we're interested in it, we're interested in relating in a wise and wholesome way, not because we think it's going to get better, but because engagement itself is liberating. And the same way that being in denial or turning away or thinking it's too much or thinking it's somebody else's responsibility, that's a little deadening to give up on something or you know, any way that we might close down or disconnect. 
So the first distortion is taking what is impermanent to be permanent. The second one is taking what is inherently unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. So what is inherently unsatisfactory? So this is sort of interesting. I mean, you may not like this, but the Buddha would basically say all sense experience is inherently unsatisfactory. Even really pleasant sense experience. So that's kind of provocative to think that even when I get everything I want, it's inherently unsatisfactory. It doesn't mean it's not pleasant. It's just that the pleasantness is temporary. So think about experiences that you've had, especially, excuse me, the really nice experiences you've had in your life. Maybe a time when you and your partner or you and your family, there's just a lot of harmony. Everybody getting along, a lot of sweetness. Or maybe a time in your life we had a lot of success, a lot of recognition, um, or, or where you were able to help people in a way that felt really meaningful. So think about, and it's you really need to do it now, so really bring something that seemed really good, really satisfying to mind. And then it's still, the memory still may feel good, but is it still like providing the a deep, resonant sense of satisfaction. Like, are you completely satisfied now because of that? And I think, honestly, we'd say no. No matter how many satisfactory experiences we have, is there anybody in the room fully and completely satisfied? So, this is the thing about sense experience. If we're honest... We, even though we pursue nice sense experiences as if they're going to be radically, fundamentally, permanently satisfying, the fact our experience has shown us is that no, it doesn't. Even when we are able to line up a lot of nice things, which is not that common, eventually they end or change, and then whatever pleasant, whatever satisfaction we got goes away. Or we get bored with it after a while. So even if it does stick around, you move to the tropics, you know. Initially, it's like so nice. You step out of the plane. I once went to, a couple times I've been to Hawaii, leaving Minnesota in the winter, or leading, leaving wherever I was living in the East Coast at the time in the winter, and showing up, you step out of the plane, and it's just like humidity and the sounds and there, you know, the plains, you, I don't know if this is still true, but you would step right out onto the outside, you know, you'd step out of the plane. So it was like, it just felt so great. But then after being there a few days, it's like, you know, it's sort of, you don't, it's not that satisfying anymore. Because you've expect, you expect it. Your mind gets bored. So it's really interesting to see that we take what is fundamentally not satisfying we take it to be satisfying. Even like crawling into bed, we think heaven on earth. But for how long? Not forever. It's not really a solution. It's just temporarily nice to be able to crawl into bed. And then at some point, like let's say you don't have to get up and go to work, 
But notice how at some point you really want to get out of bed. It's like not pleasant to be there anymore. For some of you, it might be a long time. <laughs> but for some of you, it will be three or four in the morning. I know people who like, they just, their body, mind does not want to be in that bed after a while and they have to get up out of bed and do something else because it's not a pleasant experience to be there anymore. Or even sitting down at a nice meal and then it isn't long, even if you have the right food and the right person or people there, after a while you don't want to be there anymore. Over and over, I, I, we brought, uh, we have a visiting teacher in town, Ajahn Punadamo, and we took him to see an uh, interesting film called The Martian. Uh, and I thought it was a pretty good film. But in the middle, I noticed like, okay, I'm ready to go. <laughs> and it was just so interesting, you know. They spent millions and millions making that film, you know. And it's I don't go to, to see too many films. And, and, you know, sort of interesting in a lot of ways, a pretty wholesome film. And yet, it's like, it's like, okay, that's enough. I've had enough. I kind of get what's going on. I kind of know what's going to happen. And then you're, the mind wants something else. Now, normally we're not really honest about this distortion where we think something's going to be fundamentally, permanently satisfying, but then turns out not to be. Because before we really recognize that it's not permanently satisfying, we're already interested in something else. So you really want to notice. You go home, you have something to eat, and at some point it's not satisfying anymore. You watch some TV, then it's not satisfying. Lie down, get to go to bed, sleep for a while, and then it's not satisfying. And little by little, this insight about this distortion, and you realize that we're just dawn in the mind. Life itself, sense experience itself, isn't designed to be fundamentally satisfying. We think, this is like part of this wrong view, this wrong understanding, we think it's just a matter of finding the right sense experiences before we're going to be completely satisfied. But the fact is that dawns in the mind, this insight, this wisdom is actually sense experience by its very nature, isn't meant to be satisfying. We just have the idea that it should be. It's kind of a strange idea that somehow, and it's built into some sort of religious dogmas, that somehow the earth is here, or the world is here, or this life is here, in order to provide the sense of me with satisfaction. But you see, that's, when you say it out loud like that, it's like a little crazy. Like, well, that's a little weird. Like from a nature point of view that somehow this has been made to make what I'm calling myself satisfied. No, it's just what it is. But it wasn't designed to make what I'm calling me satisfied. That wasn't part of the plan, you know, to satisfy me, let alone to satisfy all of us. So it's a fundamental distortion, this thought that experience is fundamentally here to provide satisfaction. So that's a 
distortion that can be uprooted. So the first is to take what is impermanent, process nature, to be fixed or permanent. To take what is fundamentally unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, to be satisfactory, or to be the cause for satisfaction. And then the third is to take what is fundamentally not self to be self. So what do we take to be self? Well, like my thought, you know, like I have thoughts. I'm sort of narrating things, having this internal dialogue. I even say that I'm having an internal dialogue, but I use a personal pronoun. I'm having a personal, I'm having an inner dialogue. I'm talking to myself. I'm thinking this. I thought that. But so the habit, the distortion is when I'm having thought, I think, right, I perceive as if that thought is something I'm doing, I'm talking to myself, that it's personal, right? And the Buddha would say, well, that's a distortion, a perceptual distortion. And when I think that way, I I am thinking to myself, then that's a distortion of thought. And when I have that fixed view, that underlying habit of view, that my thoughts are my thoughts, they're me. Like, it's even funny to say that, like, if it's really me, why would I have to think it to me? You know, it's like, why do I have to talk to me? Like, why wouldn't I already know? (laughs) I mean, it's amazing when you start to really unpack it. It's really silly. These distortions are really silly. But because we are mostly living in a superficial way, we don't realize how distorted our perceptions or thought and views are. So thoughts are just thoughts. I'm not saying that thoughts aren't anything. They're just not, they don't belong anywhere. They're just nature. They're just what the mind does. The mind is nature. Trees are nature. Wind is nature. Everything is just the activity of causes and conditions. Some of those causes and conditions are sort of what we conventionally say internal and some we conventionally say are external. But everything is nature in the sense that it's lawful. And in that way, it's not self. And you can just look at anything that appears to be self, like body. That's me. So we take like, and so the question is, I take this to be self. But how... What is it about this physical body, what we call the physical body, that I take to be me? I don't really control it. I mean, it seems like we can sort of, it follows my will, but it certainly doesn't when I'm getting sick, and it certainly doesn't as I get older follow my will. You know, it seems like it's following nature. And the more that we see that intention and thought and emotion are also nature, then even doing this or giving a talk to a bunch of people, you know, that's just following all of the other things that have been set in motion, which I'm not really in control of, you know, like being born a certain way and the mind getting inspired and doing this and opening that book and reading this and then doing. And we begin to see that it's actually just a natural process too the body, the mind, the activity of the body and the mind, and virtually or everything else that we take to be self, that we take to be another self, is just the activity of nature. 
This is a more tricky distortion because it's very deep. Remember I said there's the perceptual, perceptual distortion and the distortion of thought and the distortion of view. And the view, the habit of thinking and sensing that there's a center, presuming that there's a center to whom this is happening, to whom this belongs, is a very deep, pervasive habit that has a lot of momentum. So then the solution, according to the Buddha, is to be mindfully aware, so basically to collect data the way it is, that will eventually overrun, overwhelm that wrong view, that it's happening to me, that it's about me. To see that, well, that's just a thought being known, that a thought arose lawfully because of causes and conditions. And it doesn't mean that there's nothing here when we say no self. It just means that there isn't a center to what this is. Reality is whatever it is, this, right? This is reality. But the idea that reality involves a center, which is me, and that center has sort of a permanent, coherent self, that's just a thought that's arising now due to causes and conditions. The actual reality of that center can't be found, is never found. It's just presumed. And because we don't look at those presumptions, those distortions, what the Buddha calls a distortion, we just live as if it's true. And then when somebody does something that challenges that presumed idea of me, that center that doesn't change, then I, that arises lawfully a sense of threat. Your idea threatens me, right? Because we, like, you're have, you having a different opinion about the Middle East than I do, you know, can feel like a threat. Like, how could you think that? You know, how could you be, be pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian? Or how could you be neutral? You know, or how could you be ambiguous about this? So we could be threatened by any particular view because of a fixed sense of a me. And part of that fixed sense of me is that this is the truth. And then you have a different idea of truth. So then it's like a challenge. Like, how could somebody, some other center, see things differently than me? That can't be. You know, you must be wrong. Because I'm not wrong, am I? Right? So there's just that fear of, of, uh, whatever we use to constitute ourself, that set, fixed center, then that's why we have wars and all kinds of other conflicts. So we take what is not self, rather its nature, to be something that's fixed, a fixed, unchanging entity. Now we kind of know, yeah, I'm not really the same as I was as a teenager, but whoever was that teenager back, you know, in my case, 40 years ago, um, that's essentially me. You know, my body's changed, my mind's changed a little bit, but me, the meanness of me back then is the same meanness of me back now, right? Isn't that the sense we have? But that's just a presumption 
that's unquestioned. And when we start to observe honestly with mindfulness, that distortion begins to fade. So we have the distortion taking what's impermanent to be permanent, taking what is fundamentally not satisfying to be the source of satisfaction, taking what what is not self to be self. And the third is seeing the unlovely as lovely. Now, the Buddha didn't say seeing what's ugly to be lovely. He said seeing what is actually unlovely, neither lovely nor nor ugly, to be lovely. Right, so it's a, it's a distortion, like the things that delight us. It's related to the satisfaction, but just ideas or experiences that seem beautiful, seem beautiful. Like, what is beauty? What is goodness? When we think it refers back to me, that we make beauty more than what it is. So tomorrow, or even tonight, if it's a beautiful night and the stars are out, or for whatever reason, it's beautiful for you, it'd be very useful to contemplate the beauty, the pleasantness of the evening. Or you go home and let's say your house is nice and orderly and you really like it, the way you've set it up. So, Really contemplate the beauty, the goodness of it, the pleasantness of it. Or you're with your friend that you, in that moment, find beautiful or pleasant to be with. What is that? Because you might see that in the essence, it's neither beautiful nor unbeautiful. He or she is just what they are. The night, it's just the night. It's not dismissing it. It just means the mind isn't sort of tripping with passion. It's not like, you know how we are when when something's pleasant, like even your favorite shawl. You go home, you wrap yourself up in your favorite blanket or put on your favorite show or take out your favorite snack food. And it's almost like we have to whip up the idea, the concept, I'm the one who really likes watching this TV show, or I'm the one who really likes to sit on the couch with my cat in the lap with this blanket on, or I'm... And so we're sort of whipping up the experience of lovely, but having to do that, being dependent on the idea that this is lovely is stressful. It's not lovely. The mind being dependent, the mind delighting or the mind liking is itself a little stressful. And it's it's even more pleasant and peaceful to realize, yeah, it's pleasant. It's just this. It's just the the stars. It's just the nice wind. It's just the car starting up like it's supposed to. So all those ordinary pleasant experiences, it's just the companionship. You're not dismissing it, but you're not letting the mind whip up something that makes it seem, appear to be more than what it is. Whatever safety we have, whatever health we have, it's just that. It's like this now. It won't always be this way because it's a changing process.
So we don't make what's difficult more than what it is, but we also don't make what's lovely or beautiful more than what it is. And a lot of people say, and then I'll leave it here after I make this last point and see what you have to say, but a lot of you may think now, you know, I actually, I prefer the roller coaster. I prefer like really indulging in the beautiful things and really hating the unbeautiful things in my life. And that's fine because nobody's going to stop us from indulging, you know, and reacting to the pleasant and indulging and reacting to the unpleasant sort of being dramatic about things when they're bad and being dramatic about things when they're pleasant. But what the Buddha would say is, pay attention to how that is. How is that working for you to be on that roller coaster? And and you might find that it's actually more satisfying to shift your relationship to what's pleasant and unpleasant than it is to... Orient, orient around what's beautiful and to imagine that it's more than what it is. I mean, whatever, you know, we all kind of live with some fixation, maybe becoming a, a saintly person or being that sort of, you know, amazing person who builds their own cabin and lives in a perfectly green way and... Uh, yet it's totally involved in making the world a better place. So whatever that image you have for yourself as being your best person, the best person you can be, doing all the right things, it's a little bit like a hell realm. Having to, like, in order to be a satisfied, fulfilled person, I've got to be this amazing person who's in shape, but not contrived about it, not sort of... Attached to being in shape, you know, and politically correct, but not neurotic about it, and, you know, all these things. You see how imprisoning that idea is. Like, where we're actually afraid of being the person who was conditioned by culture, which is so imperfect, and has the, you know, the genetic conditioning of reptiles, right? We have all kinds of genetic conditioning built into being a beast. We have reptilian and, you know, we have the same conditioning of the other mammals and creatures on this planet. It's all like there being acted out. So we can create all these idealistic, you know, perfect marks that we want to become and then we suffer because we happen to be this mind-body unfolding as nature. So seeing what is actually not lovely to be lovely is part of this wrong view, this distortion where we misunderstand. You know, it's like instead of this life or this world being something to take a hold of, the whole point of this life, this world experience is to let go, to realize, as Ajahn Chah says, the reality of non-grasping. That's actually the source of real freedom and the source of beautiful engagement, wise engagement, making the world actually a happier place is in the non-grasping. 
if we think we're going to make the world better by grasping something, we're basically reinforcing the underlying root of suffering and confusion. It's the grasping, thinking that hate and greed make for something good that makes the world the way it is. So I'll leave it here. It'll be interesting to hear what you have to say about these four distortions, which are the opposite of wisdom. So it's the overcoming of these distortions. What's impermanent to be permanent. What's unlovely to be lovely. What's not self to be self. What's unsatisfying to be the source of satisfaction. So what comes to mind? It would be nice to hear from you. Remember to speak right into the mic so we can all hear you. Who would like to begin? And of course, any questions that you might have about what I've said tonight comes to mind. Anybody see snakes? You know, these fears, these compulsions where, you know, we have, we have them a lot. Yeah, please. Oh, you were just moving. (laughs) Sorry. Be careful about moving. Um, so you talk about how a single experience cannot be satisfactory. Sometimes I have this illusion that if I string pleasant experiences, like you say, for example, lying down, after a while it becomes unpleasant, but if I get up and get some good food, and then after that, you know, go for a walk, sometimes I have the illusion that that's what, that's what I'm, I'm looking for, to, to keep the pleasantness in each activity. So how, what would you say about that? Yeah, and that's the real shadow of people who have good fortune and um, have enough affluence and uh, not being oppressed you know, by the culture that we can have the delusion that I can string together one pleasant experience after another. And because it almost works, that we can be deluded thinking that it does work for a long, long time. And in Buddhist cosmology, this is the, um, the metaphor of this is like being in a celestial realm. Because, you know, cosmologically speaking, when you're a, an angelic being, you know, by definition, everything works out. You have a body of light or, you know, sort of an ephemeral body. It, it's said like in the, in the mythology or whatever you want to call it, in the angelic realms that when you're born, you immediately become a teenager in full bloom, have health and ripeness, right? And you stay that way until the moment before you die. You never get old. So you've got this sort of vibrant, youthful body. um, And it's like, you know, you live in these amazing palaces. I mean, there's different realms, but in some of the realms, it's like, Every sense pleasure is available. So you're really able to string one pleasant thing after another. And it appears to the mind like, why not? Because it's working. But what's missing is the subtle, and it's very subtle, stress of always having to have another sense, pleasant sense experience that the mind is actually dependent on there always being another and there's always another. It's a subtle stress. 
but it becomes more apparent on the day when it isn't easily available. Right? It's always such a shock. And they say what a shock it is for those, you know, just in terms of the stories around Buddhist cosmology, the day that angelic being realizes, because they live for, by the way, they live for a long time, like a long, an inconceivable length of time. So it's such a shock because you're still in that full bloom of health and vibrancy and then all of a sudden your life ends. And it's such a shock because what did you think? That I'd be able to string one pleasant experience after another forever. And of course this happens to for even those of us who have a privileged life where it's been mostly uh, mostly success and mostly well-being and mostly health. And then something happens where all of a sudden we thought the relationship was working, but the, the other person wants out. Or we thought we were healthy, and then we find out we have brain cancer. One of our community members, some of you know, um, younger than me by a number of years, seemed really healthy, having a great life, a couple of wonderful kids, a wonderful partner, and has a, an aggressive brain cancer. And so these are not, these experiences are not uncommon. One day you wake up to find a good friend of mine, somebody I roomed with for a couple of years in college, um, wonderful person. And uh, he was a physicist out in Berkeley. And uh, I, he, I hadn't been connected. I, I saw him for a while when he was a grad student and I also lived in Berkeley. and But I hadn't seen him for a couple decades. And then I get an email from him, you know, that he's, some of my talks online. He's get interested in Buddhist meditation practice. I said, well, you know, I'm going to be out in the Bay Area. I'll come see you and show up. And just the energy in his house was just so off. And after a few minutes, he says, yeah, I, I just saw the doctor and I have lung cancer. Just found out like a day before I show up. And of course, he and the family just doesn't know what to do. And it's serious. And... Uh, Sure enough, he dies like two and a half months later, you know, from the time he found out about it. Back then, he was probably 50 years old, good health, ran a lot. So these sort of shocks, and, you know, he had a perfect life. He had a great kid, a wonderful partner, interesting job. You know, just Berkeley is such a cool place. I mean, if you're going to live somewhere, it's a really cool place to live. And... uh and then it was gone, like that. So, this is the thing that we need to remember is two things. It's a little stressful, even when it's really easy to string one nice thing after another. It's still stressful, subtly, for the mind to need a nice experience. Even if it's easy to get it, it's stressful to need it. It's so nice the feeling, like when you're in a deep meditation, a really deep meditation, so an unusually deep meditation, somebody who's been practicing for a while usually, but it's not something you get right away usually, then part of what makes that deep meditative experience amazing is the mind experiences not needing anything. It's dropped below the level of sense desire. And so it's experiencing the bliss, the happiness of a mind that doesn't need to string another nice sense experience. 
So another way you say this, like it's content. So that neurotic habit of stringing, of looking for the next pleasant sense experience is quiet because it's realized, I don't have to do that. It's such a nice experience. I'll just end with a little story. A a good friend of mine and one of my important teachers and now somebody I teach with, Kamala Masters, really wonderful Dharma teacher uh, who lives in Hawaii but teaches at Spirit Rock and IMS a lot. And here, too, comes out to Minnesota uh, every other year to teach. But she tells a story about this dog at IMS, this wonderful retreat center out in Massachusetts. And there's this beautiful three-and-a-half-mile loop that a lot of the retreatants walk in the middle of the day to get a little exercise. It's a very tranquil, peaceful place. And there's an old dog, used to be an old dog. And whenever somebody would be walking by along this three-and-a-half-mile loop, the dog would neurotically think it would have to follow. It was a very friendly dog. And then somebody else would be walking in the other direction and then would walk. And then some, and all day long, for hours, the dog... So Kamala, being this sort of compassionate and wise person, saw the dog, got what was going on, and, and one day, as she was walking by and the dog started to follow, she said, stay, you know, and just in a very fierce, powerful voice. And, and I don't know, I mean... She really understood, but she had the sense like what a relief it was for the dog to be given permission. I don't have to neurotically do that. I can just sit here and watch these people walk by. I don't have to follow them. And that's this realization like I can the mind can drop the need to string one thing after another. So it's, you know, we have cliches about just being instead of doing. Or just being instead of becoming somebody who needs another experience. Who needs to to delight in this. So even when we're delighting in wholesome things, let alone the unwholesome things that cause other people harm or ourselves harm. But even if we're just delighting in wholesome things, it's even a more refined happiness to not have to be delighting. To be peaceful. So I'll leave it there. We don't have any more time for conversation. So we'll just let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. Appreciate the silence. Appreciate the space of the mind or that which is unformed. May our lives be part of the causes for real peace and happiness and freedom from suffering in our hearts, in our lives, and in the world. So may this be so. And thanks again, everyone, for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, Or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.